AJT readers, this is uh, Josh Levitsky, and we're coming to you from AJT Highlights. This is the June 2023 episode. As always, joining me is Roz Manon from the University of Nebraska Medical Center. Today, we are going to be going over four papers that are in the June issue of AJT. Roz will kick us off with two papers, the first being the evolving use of biomarkers in heart transplantation, consensus of an expert panel by Kobashigawa et al. And then uh, the next paper is entitled Effects of In Vivo CXCR4 Blockade and Proteasome Inhibition on Bone Marrow Plasma Cells in HLA-Sensitized Kidney Transplant Candidates by Rossi et al. Then I will do the final two papers, the first being an ethical analysis of obesity as a contraindication to pediatric liver transplant candidacy by Berkman et al. And then finally, uh, racial and ethnic disparities in psychosocial evaluation and liver transplant waitlisting by Deutsch Link et al. So without further ado, Roz, welcome. And uh, I would like to invite you to kick this off with uh, the first paper on heart transplant biomarkers. Well, thanks, Josh. My first paper will be the Kabashigawa paper, The Evolving Use of Biomarkers in Heart Transplant, Consensus of an Expert Panel. So the American side of transplantation convened virtual meetings in 2022 to assess the um, role of biomarkers uh, in solid organ transplant. And there were multiple groups, including one for heart transplantation. And this paper reviews those um, proceedings as well as made some recommendations. The purpose of this group's work, which was through the Thoracic and Critical Care Community of Practice, was to review and appraise the available analytical and clinical data for advanced diagnostic tests for heart recipients, to identify the assay advantages and limitations, to provide guidelines for the use of those tests in transplant recipients in specific applications, and also to determine unmet needs and use of future research strategies. There were two focused areas for clinical implementation, uh, acute rejection monitoring, which is a continued ongoing issue in cardiac transplant patients. Again, waiting for the heart to be dysfunctional is not really an appropriate strategy, and so many of these patients uh, undergo surveillance cardiac biopsy on a routine basis. And the other focus of implementation was to define the level of an individual's immune responsiveness in order to personalize their immunosuppressive therapy. The paper starts off with a community-based survey that was sent to 134, all which apparently are all the heart transplant programs in the U.S., of which only 25% or 34 responded. 82% of the respondents were cardiologists. There was not one surgeon mentioned that responded. And of all those programs that did respond, almost all used biomarkers in monitoring their transplant recipients. About 34% believe that subclinical rejection is important to detect in the cardiac transplant patient population. 45% felt that a high negative predictive value was necessary to taper immunosuppression. More than half felt that the cost of the test had to be reasonable, and a number quoted was less than $500 per test, and 91% felt it was okay to run biomarkers in series or parallel 
the rest of the paper really investigates each biomarker and the specific literature related to heart transplantation. I'll just go in very quick sequence, um, and you can read the paper to get the full gist. But obviously, HLA-DSA is probably the strongest with clinical validation of all biomarkers mentioned. But treatment and impact of DSA when it's positive wasn't clear. And again, having effective therapies um, to treat uh, HLA-DSA was mentioned, although the platforms have been standardized. Non-HLA-DSA was the second biomarker, and there's an extensive literature associating these non-HLA antibodies with late graft failure, things like antiperlican and antivimentin associated with transplant coronary vasculopathy. But it hasn't been really shown that, you know, the these are associative studies and not causative studies. So, you know, removing that antibody and, and mitigating long-term injury has not been identified. The third strategy is gene expression profiling and peripheral blood. There is one commercial assay to do this, which looks at 11 expressed genes in cardiac allograft recipients who are at low risk for acute cellular rejection. They cited one multi-center prospective trial where the gene expression used um, had similar survival to those without using it, but fewer cardiac biopsies. And therefore, uh, the study actually impacted uh, the International Society for Heart Lung Transplant 2010 guidelines for only um, in terms of utilizing it for the care of their patients. And it's really only valid for acute cellular rejection, not antibody-mediated rejection. The next biomarker studied was donor-derived cell-free DNA. And as you know, we have two commercial assays. They cited a pediatric study where a positive test was associated with acute cellular rejection. Again, um, the positive predictive value was low. And so the thought was that it could necessitate avoiding a biopsy. Again, this test doesn't differentiate acute cellular rejection and acute antibody-mediated rejection. And because of the limited uh, evidence, they made no conclusion about the implementation of the study. Some other assays mentioned were a T-cell immune monitoring assay, again, potentially predictive of infection and based on a small study, looked and appeared to be associated with infection. But again, uh, it's unclear whether there was a risk of rejection and, and those results were discordant. Not clear if it would help for those predominantly that are over-immunosuppressed. And importantly, a positive score does not equal acute cellular rejection. They also studied microRNA, and I would just briefly say this isn't ready for prime time. The next biomarker was intergraph mRNA, or gene expression. Again, this is potentially an opportunity because there is um, some robust data from the interheart study. This is using the molecular microscope, or MMDX which uses a genome-wide uh, microarray and biopsies, and it uses these ensembles and, and of predefined machine learning-based algorithms to provide diagnosis. However, I think you, you they noted that there was some alignment and some misalignment with the histology, and that's probably due to the significant, first of all, the biopsy is used as a gold standard, and there is certain inter-observer variability and discrepancies between the histologic interpretation and heart transplants. So, again, perhaps an opportunity. Digital pathology was also mentioned, the ability to perform quantitative image analysis, again, um, and maybe potentially using computer algorithms to make diagnoses. 
again, I think this is promising, but probably too early. And finally, they um, mentioned extracellular vesicles, which are, are found in nearly all body fluids that are secreted both in stable and, and unstable uh, medical states. And they were specifically thinking about the opportunity of EV cell surface markers in the context of antibody media rejection. Again, I think the data are really preliminary. I think nicely uh, displayed in the table, table one is sort of a discussion of the group's participation and some thought processes in terms of what they thought were relevant to the test, what available data was uh, was present, and whether there would be clinical practicality to implementing the test, uh, and importantly, whether a negative predictive value was of importance to this group. They did come out with some breakout questions, which are listed um, in the discussion. I think they're mostly uh, sort of uh, thoughtful in terms of relationships to biomarkers within the heart transplant. And in spite of the fact that they had, um, you know, sort of limited data, they did come up with what are consensus expert opinion um, in the last paragraph of the 17 participants. I think most important is that 82% of participants felt that the endomyocardial biopsy is not a true gold standard to reject to detect rejection. And because of the imperfect nature of this gold standard, I think further biomarker development will be relatively complex. So, you know, I look forward to seeing some additional studies. I can say that the kidney transplant um, field also um, has somewhat similar difficulties um, in terms of having some of these biomarkers, though they may have analytical validity and um, clinical validity, the clinical utility remains unclear. My next paper is that by Rossi and colleagues. This is from Steve Woodle's lab, The Effects of In Vivo CXCR4 Blockade and Proteasome Inhibition on Bone Marrow Plasma Cells in HLA-Sensitized Kidney Transplants. So this group has really worked hard in, in looking at the challenge of desensitization strategies. And as they've noted and others have noted that after you treat with, say, IVIG and plasmapheresis, you have a significant rebound of HLA-DSA after that treatment. And this group has focused on plasma cell targeted treatments, specifically using proteasome inhibitors like bortezomib, for example, or carfilzomib as well. Uh, again, these are effective treatments, but once, you know, discontinued or reduced, you can see rebound. And certainly bortezomib has significant uh, off-target toxicity and side effects. So this group has been interested in the CXCR4, CXCL12 axis. Again, this axis is important in recruiting and retaining plasma cells in the bone marrow. And they hypothesize that if you disrupted the bone marrow niche of plasma cells, you could facilitate plasma cell death by survival factor deprivation and or uh, proteasome inhibition treatment. And so they used a commercially available agent, a CXCR4 antagonist, and the, the, the stem cell mobilizer plurexifor. You guys may remember this. I think it's in use in bone marrow transplant oftentimes when they're trying to elicit uh, stem cell mobilization for um, hepato, uh, hematopoietic stem cell transfer. This is really a proof of concept study. It's an open label study. It had three different groups with a total of 11 patients. Now you may say, but Roz, why are we talking about such a small study? Well, this is a small pilot study to look at safety and also very heavy into mechanistic sampling. So these patients and the study team have to be given credit 
for really a complicated nature of trying to do these kind of detailed studies. Uh, and it brings back um, some of my memories of my NIH days with Alan Kirk and Doug Hale, where we had very small patient numbers, but we were really focusing on these patients in quite detail. These individuals, which are shown in figure one, are extremely highly sensitized, having uh, CPRAs that are greater than 100%. So exactly a starting population with real real complicated um, uh, HLA biology. There were three groups, uh, the initial group A, which only used Plex and Plurexifor. And when I say Plex, I don't mean Plurexifor, but they used Plurexifor, IVIG, and plasmapheresis with albortizumab. A second group, group B, with four participants that included bortizumab as after treatment with Plurexifor. And a third group, which had um, even more dosing or higher dosing of bortizumab uh, in association with plerixifor. So needless to say, I'll go to the results. Importantly, um, these individuals actually tolerated this treatment relatively well. So side effect profile was not uh, anything more unusual than the things we often see post-transplant. Um, and these are pre-transplant patients. Um, including leukocyte, um, low leukocyte counts, leukopenia, anemia, and some peripheral neuropathy. But again, this was grade one to two. And interestingly, there were alterations in the HLA-DSA immunodominant patterns, which are shown in figure two. But overall, they did not have, when treatment uh, through the protocol, there was some reduction, but it wasn't really complete and it was not persistent. And they did see impact on peripheral blood cell counts after treatment with stem cell mobilizer. I would summarize a lot of what appears to be relatively negative data. And, and first and foremost, that the plasma cell mobilization was much less robust than other hepato, uh, hematopoietic stem cells. And they actually performed bone marrow aspirates in a subsection of these patients in, in group B and, and C. And they really showed no total, no change in the total mononuclear cells and, and reductions in plasma cells were not consistent. I think what was most in interesting in this paper was that they used single cell sequencing of uh, gene expression, which showed significant heterogeneity. And this is in figure five. Um, and then they actually isolate or, or show some clustering of differentially expressed genes uh, into six different clusters. Interestingly, this this clustering was not affected by treatment, but if you looked at patient, you know, samples before and samples after treatment, there was a quantifi quantifiable decrease in immunoglobulin transcription of about 10%. They also noted an increase in a protein called P62, which is an autophagy-related protein. And so they did some in, um, in vivo mouse studies using an inducible mouse, um, a mouse with inducible P62 knockout and looking at bone marrow in vitro, you know, when they were able to reduce the expression or knock out the expression of P62, it led to an increase in plasma cell death when they exposed it to proteasome inhibitors. So these findings unexpectedly suggest that maybe plasma cells are using autophagy to cope with the stress in the context when PIs are used, when proteasome inhibitors are used, there's a failure of normal protein synthesis and a reduction in expression of these proteins. 
So overall, um, the clinical findings did not exactly mimic what they expected to see in mouse studies, um, although they did have a reduction in immunoglobulin transcripts. It does show the importance of autophagy, I think, and during, you know, the use of proteasome inhibitor treatment. And maybe that is really the next step is to disaggregate uh, the ability for plasma cells once mobilized to undergo autophagy. It's unclear. They did show the mobilization of plerixophore to both for both plasma cells and mononuclear cells, although perhaps not to the level expected. And really, in the absence of bortezomib, it's not clear. You know, they didn't have a bortezomib alone uh, arm, so it's a little difficult to know whether some of their findings were related to the combination of therapy uh, versus bortezomib alone because they didn't have a comparator. Again, kudos to this group for doing such a detailed immunological study and really advancing our understanding of these bone marrow niches and bone marrow plasma cells, which are important in mediating um, uh, ongoing uh, HLA uh, antibody production. So with that, Josh, I will go ahead and turn this over to you. Okay. Thank you, Roz, for reviewing those two really uh, interesting papers in heart and kidney transplantation. And so I'm going to take us to two papers in liver transplantation, the first being, as I mentioned before, an ethical analysis of obesity as a contraindication to pediatric liver transplant candidacy uh, by Berkman et al. from uh, the University of Washington School of Medicine. This was a really interesting uh, paper because it was sort of a review, but uh, almost, but also kind of a, a, this is a personal viewpoint on how we should view childhood obesity and candidacy for liver transplantation, as this is a rising concern and problem in this population. To to uh, start it off, the uh, authors mentioned a paper from a few years ago that many transplant centers, pediatric transplant centers, consider obesity a contraindication for pediatric liver transplant, despite this, of course, being a life-saving procedure uh, for children. And uh, we know that the uh, there's a significant rise in childhood obesity and liver disease related to childhood obesity, fatty liver disease, that uh, is of significant concern. And so the article really was trying to de define and report the prevalence of childhood obesity uh, by reviewing the prior literature in, in children with end-stage liver disease review the existing guidelines for liver transplant in adults with obesity, examine pediatric liver transplant outcomes, uh, including for obese children, and then really go into the ethical analysis here, a very robust and ethical analysis of using obesity as a contraindication to pediatric liver transplant. So they start off by um, talking about how a quarter of, uh, over a quarter of U.S. children from a study from eight years ago, uh, were, were defined as being obese. There's a rising incidence of NAFLD, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and in boys and girls, one third of boys and one quarter of girls. Although while NAFLD is the, is the fastest growing and most common indication for liver transplant among adults, it's only performed in a minority of children who have NAFLD as a cause of, uh, end stage liver disease. And I think this is primarily because it just has not Taken enough time to cause end-stage liver disease in most of most children, although some of these patients are developing it in their teenage years. Looking at it prior prior guidelines from the ASLD in 2014, 
pediatric guidelines and the ASLD 2018 NAFLD guidelines. Um, there was really no BMI cutoff that was recommended for liver transplantation. There wasn't really evidence that worse outcomes for children with obesity. And uh, so that right now, the guidelines really did not recommend using any type of BMI cutoff for transplantation, although there was a recent survey that was published that showed that more than half the programs considered a BMI of greater than 45, an absolute contraindication, and about 10 or 11% considered BMI of 35 to 39, an absolute contraindication. So while the guidelines said to not use BMI cutoffs, these are being done based on a survey. So the next question is, is are outcomes different in obese versus non-obese pediatric liver transplant recipients? And and um, there's only one study that suggested a survival difference between the two, but it was small uh, at 12 years, 72 versus 77%. And uh, still in that study, there was a high overall survival and clear benefit of liver transplantation. And a couple other studies uh, did not show this um, survival difference, but showed longer length of stay with obese children um, after liver transplant and uh, is a predictor of post-transplant obesity, um, which is, this is very similar to the adult population that we're not really seeing a survival difference, but we're seeing more morbidity and more complications long-term, but the survival benefit is still with liver transplantation. Then the paper dives into obesity and utility and obesity and justice, equity considerations, and respect for persons. And while Malette the uh, listeners of this podcast read more about this in the paper. They really did an in-depth analysis of, of the ethics of excluding pediatric liver transplant candidates based on obesity. And they, because of the lack of uh, worse outcomes and the fact that there really there are a lot of disparities here, especially um, there's genetic and socioeconomic disparities that lead to some groups having higher obesity rates, and the fact that children are being managed by adults rather than on their own volition and may not have access to healthy lifestyle. The bottom line is the report here really supports that childhood obesity is really not self-imposed, but rather a result of social injustices and really should not be used as a contraindication to liver transplant unless there's some surgical or technical uh, issue. And so they recommend, though, that more data needs to be collected um, and, and, and further steps, such as studying and describing the prevalence and outcomes of pediatric liver transplant candidates with obesity in a more robust way, perhaps through databases, uh, recognizing the potential for bias in data. And they really should be targeting evidence-based treatments for weight loss pre- and post-transplant and addressing the health inequities that contribute to obesity and, and use adjustments in scoring to avoid concerns that programs may have regarding the loss of accreditation because of outcomes. This is very similar to the adult population. And I think what we will see over the next uh, several years is um, this being a higher uh, and more significant problem in this population. But I imagine the, the main uh, focus here really will be on interventions to reduce uh, weight prior to and particularly after liver transplant and improving outcomes long-term, especially this population that is going to have their grafts for a much longer time than any adult um, and are at risk for 
alloimmune and non-immune or, uh, injuries such as, again, uh, steatosis, fatty liver in the graft. But regardless, the survival benefit is much in favor of transplanting obese children, and we should continue to do so, And but uh, look towards interventions to improve this problem over time. Second paper uh, on liver transplant is entitled Racial and Ethnic Disparities in Psychosocial Evaluation in Liver Transplant Waitlisting. This is from uh, the first author's Deutsch Link, and uh, it was kind of a, a combination approach of different authors, but really looked at um, a large um, urban transplant center at University of Pennsylvania to uh, evaluate their the relationship between uh, psychosocial assessments and racial and ethnic profiles, and to see uh, who if there is if there are disparities in patients being listed for transplant based on psychosocial risk and whether uh, race and ethnicity were uh, had a had a role to play here or an association. And this is a center that used uh, CIPAT, which is the Stanford Integrated Psychosocial Assessment for Transplant, which is a psychosocial assessment tool that collects data as four domains, uh, patient's readiness level, social support system, psychological suitability and psychopathology, and lifestyle and effect of substance use. And so higher scores like greater than uh, 21, which they used here, would be considered um, not a, a as acceptable as a transplant candidate um, with all of these four factors in in play. And the group hypothesized that uh, racial and ethnic minorities may experience a higher psychosocial risk score, which may negatively affect their likelihood of of transplant waitlisting. And so this was a large single-cell cohort. Nearly 3,000 patients were evaluated. The vast majority of them actually had CIPAT scores, um, which were routinely done at this center. And so the vast majority of the patients were included in this study. They noted that CIPAT was not used to decide on transplantation, but it was used as part of the multidisciplinary committee to decide candidacy. Um, I mentioned the CIPAT score. They also looked at other covariates. Um, they categorized CIPAT into less than 21 being a good or excellent candidate versus greater than or equal to 21 as a minimally acceptable or for poor candidate. And so um, they did a extensive analysis. You can see in Table 1 uh, the number of uh, patients, uh, 2271, and the vast majority of patients were Caucasian, uh, but they had a, a sizable percentage of uh, Black and uh, Hispanic and Latin American and Asian in the uh, race and ethnicity in, the, in this population. So... Um, the results are were really interesting. Again, this is from a single large center, but uh, compared to white patients, black and Hispanic patients had had higher CIPAT scores, uh, but not really dramatically. So, there, I mean, a higher prevalence of high risk CIPAT scores. So, we're talking about thirty four to thirty percent, and the Hispanic patients were more likely than white patients to have high risk scores in in readiness and social support. And so, there was a uh, higher higher scores in Hispanic and Black patients than white, but again, not not a real dramatic difference in CIPAT scores. However, they did a multivariate analysis and found that that Black race and Hispanic Latinx ethnicity were associated with not being waitlisted for psychosocial reasons. 
Interestingly, the predicted probability of not being waitlisted for psychosocial reasons for black patients with a CIPAT score greater than 21 was 43% versus 23% in white patients. It's sort of suggesting that race on its own was a factor in not listing somebody despite similar CIPAT scores, meaning the psychosocial re- the psychosocial um, being not not being waitlisted for psychosocial reasons was was much higher in uh, black versus white patients with high CIPAT scores. And so black ultimately the the summary is that although no differences were detected in overall waitlisting, black and Hispanic patients were more likely to be declined for waitlisting for psychosocial reasons. And the really this is not something that is likely just at this center. This is probably pervasive in um, transplant centers, although we cannot prove that this is just a, a factor of this center. This is it 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 highlights these definite potential impl- implicit biases that are in our transplant evaluation that uh, race and ethnicity have something to do with patients not being listed for transplant, even though they're at similar psychosocial risk compared to, say, Caucasian patients. Certainly, this uh, needs to be evaluated in other centers and determine if this is something that is pervasive, but but obviously very concerning. At least the group was was very uh, this important study that they did to look at their their own center and just kind of highlighted that transplant centers should acknowledge the risk of implicit racial bias. That one of the ways to curtail this or help this problem is to provide implicit bias training and workshops and and have a good diverse representation on the transplant committee that could help decrease this disparity. Also. Uh, more social support, ready, uh, readiness, and health literacy could be provided to uh, close the gap here on the, this um, inequity. And uh, what was nice, they did highlight, um, actually, I'm at Northwestern, and we have a Hispanic kidney transplant program and a North and a African-American transplant access program run by, respectively, Juan Carlos Caicedo and Denae Simpson. And these are directed at... Uh, programs at these populations to specifically help and provide a culturally sensitive approach to these populations um, and decrease uh, barriers and decrease the disparity. But it's really a call for action that this uh, one center was able to show these differences. Um, I imagine this is occurring across the United States and not just at this one center. And we really need to develop these programs that that lessen these disparities um, in waitlisting and access to transplant. So that is it. These are really uh, important papers that were reviewed. Um, I'd like to thank Roz for her participation, and we will see you back in July for the July uh, 2023 episode of AJT Highlights. Thanks, everyone. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT Highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter. 